1997, sanctions were imposed on Sierra Leone by the United Nations and the international community as part of a deliberate and determined effort to remove from power the AFRC junta which had toppled President Tijan Kaba's democratically elected government. What was unusual about the sanctions was that they were backed up by a UK ban on humanitarian aid and specifically food aid in the form of rice. Rice is very much loved by Sierra Leoneans, both rich and poor. I'm Robin White, and throughout the Sierra Leone War, I was editing the BBC World Service's daily current affairs programme, Focus on Africa. I remember the controversy over these sanctions at the time. I'm joined now by two people who took active parts in the sanctions debate in 1997. Peter Penfold, who as British High Commissioner took refuge in Conakry, Guinea, with the elected government of Sierra Leone, and was one of the most important people in the decision to include rice in the sanctions and Margie Buchanan-Smith, who was emergency and policy head of the British NGO Action Aid, and was one of the most outspoken opponents of food sanctions at the time. Before we go into the specifics of the sanctions in Sierra Leone, I'd like to start by asking both of you what your opinion is of sanctions in general. Are they effective, and in what circumstances are they justified? Let's start with you, Peter Penfold. I think it's very difficult to look at all the various conflicts that we've seen, certainly since the Second World War and try and identify where sanctions specifically have actually sort of achieved what they set out to do. But that's not to say, I think, that uh, sanctions should not be used. I think targeted sanctions for a specific, more limited purpose can often be a useful part of a process in trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve. Margie Buchanan-Smith? I think my concern around sanctions is to apply the sanctions in such a way that it's actually the political ruling leaders that you're really affecting and that you're really inflicting damage on them. And I think the concerns that I've always had around sanctions is whether, in fact, that they're hurting the the poorest people in the country who may not even have elected those leaders. And how can you make sure that those people actually have access to the basic needs, basic food, whatever it is that they need to survive? And in implementing any sanctions regime, it's protecting those people that's important. And then it's a question of actually trying to make sanctions as tight or, as many people say now, going for smart sanctions that will really affect the people that you're trying to have an impact on. What about in a country where most people agreed that there should be sanctions. I'm thinking of South Africa. Most black South Africans wanted sanctions. Absolutely. But again, I think it's um, how can you make sure that people who are in real need are not being adversely affected? And I'm really talking here about lives being threatened, where you've got people who simply are struggling to survive and to meet their basic needs. I think that's where there has to be some exemptions to the sanctions to make sure that those people are not being adversely affected. Let's turn to Sierra Leone specifically now, which is what we're here to talk about, where the main point of contention was over the inclusion in sanctions of humanitarian aid and rice in particular, in 2003, the Henry Dunant Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue, a respected organisation based in Geneva, was highly critical of Sierra Leone sanctions. This is what they said. Based on the reasonable assumption that civilian lives that may otherwise have been saved were lost unnecessarily, this period stands as one of the most shameful episodes regarding international humanitarian action in modern times. 
those encouraging the policy may well have been in breach of the Geneva Conventions through attempts to block humanitarian assistance from reaching a civilian population. Peter Penfold, one of the most shameful episodes in humanitarian action. True or not? No, I would not agree with that at all. I mean, first of all, I think we have to be specifically clear that the sanctions as such that were imposed by um, the United Nations and um, endorsed by the UK were specifically related to three issues. One was the sanctions against arms and ammunition. The second was against petroleum products. And the third was a travel ban. Where the humanitarian aid came in was an aid policy decision taken by the British government that they would cease all British aid to Sierra Leone until such time as the constitutionally elected government was restored. And that decision included the funding that was going to NGOs and NGOs that were providing humanitarian assistance. Did you yourself back that from the very beginning? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. The other point about the Henry Dunant point that I would certainly argue was that I think, first of all, it was very difficult to have a, a precise picture of exactly what was going on. But I would argue very strongly that far many more lives were being lost because of the continuing presence of the junta and the activities of the junta and the RUF than the fact that humanitarian aid was not going into the country. You wouldn't agree with that? What I wouldn't agree with is that humanitarian aid should be withheld as part of this withholding of all aid because that actually contravenes basic humanitarian principles, basic humanitarian principles which state that all humanitarian aid should be provided on the basis of impartiality. In other words, regardless of race, creed, also regardless of, of any political or religious standpoint. How hard did you fight the British government at the time? Uh, well, in our view, we thought we, we fought the British government pretty hard. But you lost. Well, we didn't manage to reverse that particular policy decision at that time, but we did notice a softening of that position later on and we would like to think that it did have an impact on the British government's policy, in particular the Department for International Development's policy on humanitarian aid. Did you have angry arguments with them? Yes, I think it would be fair to say we did have some angry arguments with them, yeah. Storming out? No, we didn't storm out. Shouting. No, we carried on talking. Um, we carried on talking, but, but we, we held very different points of view. We met with DFID officials and we also presented our evidence to the International Development Select Committee in the House of Commons. Most people in Sierra Leone, as far as we can tell, uh, disagreed with you. Here's Davidson Kuyate, a leading civil rights activist at the time. What benefits actually would there be with humanitarian aid? And besides, who would have guaranteed that with humanitarian aid in this country, the junta was not going to use it to their benefit? So for us, we thought that humanitarian aid of whatever kind, would have added to the mystery, you know, that was prevalent at the time. Would you like to comment on that? How can we ever know whether the majority of Sierra Leoneans thought that humanitarian aid shouldn't be provided? We were getting feedback from some local communities that actually they did feel that relief aid should continue to be provided. I think we completely understood the concerns that humanitarian aid might be abused and might be siphoned off and certainly we did not want humanitarian aid to be used in that way so we did not want the military hunter using humanitarian aid for their own political or military purposes wouldn't they have inevitably have done that well no you see that's where that's where we felt it was possible to provide humanitarian aid 
in ways that would reach the people who really needed it. And indeed, if you look around many different countries in Africa, that's the challenge that's facing humanitarian agencies all over the place, whether it's South Sudan, whether it's Liberia, whether it's been Somalia. And it's not to say that we're always 100% successful, but actually, if you start to say our fear of that aid being abused means that we simply can't provide it at all, then you've actually given up before you've even started. Yes, but how much stealing by the military junta would have been successful if they'd just stolen half of it? Would that have been acceptable? I don't think that would have been acceptable. I think that would have been... That in itself would have been far too much. And I wouldn't... And what proportion of theft would have been acceptable? I don't think I would look at it in that way. I think the way I would look at it is... In what way can we provide humanitarian aid that ensures it's most likely to reach the people who who need it? And to give you an example of that, because just prior to this whole period that we're talking about, aid agencies had had their fingers burnt in Liberia, where there'd been tremendous looting of aid vehicles, relief aid, etc. In response to that, agencies had realised that what they needed to do was, in a sense, go for a minimal approach to providing humanitarian assistance. So, for instance, rather than providing food aid in bulk, which is inevitably a valuable resource, you'd go for wet feeding centres where you can be sure you know who's actually receiving the food. I'm not saying that would have been possible across all of Sierra Leone, but I'm saying by using strategies like that, you can minimise the likelihood of the food or whatever the relief resources are being siphoned off and you can maximise the likelihood that it gets to the people who need it. Peter? Well, I would say that we felt at the time that uh, ActionAid or in the NGOs could not guarantee that the aid, that went, if they delivered it, would get to those people who needed it, if indeed they needed it in the first place. Are you suggesting that they didn't need it? Yes. That people I, were eating enough? Uh, we didn't take this decision lightly at all. I mean, certainly, you know, it's not a question we were going to starve people to death for the sake of some political gain. And we were monitoring the situation very, very closely. As you know, I was in Conakry at the time. When we first went there, every evening we had a meeting in the hotel where I was saying of all the UN agencies, all the NGOs, all diplomatic missions used to meet to monitor what was going on. Throughout the day while I was there, I would be in telephone contact with a number of people inside Sierra Leone. I would be talking to them quite regularly. We would be in contact with all the people who were coming out from Sierra Leone. Throughout the 10 months we were there, people were continuing to come out. We were also in touch with other governments all around the world who were also monitoring it. So although I'm not saying we had an exact picture, I feel that certainly we probably had a better picture sitting in Conakry than anyone else did and what, how serious the situation was. What um, kind of government did you perceive this to be? Brutal? Hopeless? What? Well, initially we didn't perceive it as a government at all. And, of course, that's exactly what the Sierra Leone people said. They refused to acknowledge the junta as their government as people will recall. I mean, it was an amazing time of civil society coming together. And they just refused to acknowledge the hunter. The students refused to go to school. And as we all know, in, in Africa, education is one of the, the most important things to anybody. But were they, were they incompetent or brutal or both? What were they? Um, they were both. They were certainly incompetent. I mean, it was a joke, of course, every time they tried to form a government, um, they would name people as ministers and immediately we'd see those people appearing in Conakry who had the fear of death and being wanting to be called a minister in the Junta. Um, they were also very brutal. There were endless examples of stories we were being told of um, the rebels going around, still hacking people's arms and legs off and killing them. 
But importantly, we were also monitoring very closely how serious the humanitarian situation was. And um, we even had a team come out in September of that year, European Union team, who collated all the available evidence that we had. And our conclusion was that, in general, there was no humanitarian crisis taking place in, in Sierra Leone. There was nobody dying of hunger in Sierra Leone. Yes, there was some evidence of malnutrition amongst some of the young children in Freetown. Yes, there was evidence of, of measles. But generally... There was not a humanitarian crisis which would not justify us having a different um, decision over whether we should start funding NGOs providing humanitarian aid. Margie, did anybody die in Sierra Leone because of the food sanctions? Our view was that the humanitarian situation was deteriorating after the coup. I mean, we're talking about one of the poorest countries in the world here. And, of course, the effect of an economic embargo is to make it much more difficult for food supplies to be transported around the country. And whilst I, I agree with Peter that it was difficult to have really detailed reports of what was happening, at the same time, there was information coming out of Sierra Leone at that time which showed malnutrition rates increasing. In the northern districts, malnutrition rates had increased to around 15% by the end of 1997. We had reports coming back from our local staff of people reducing their intake of food to, say, one meal a day, which is immediately a sign of distress. And um, there was a report that came out from, actually, UN Security Assessment, and I quote here, there were numerous corroborated reports of a significant increase in death due to malnutrition. But do you know of any one person who died? I'm not going to quote to you one or two people who died because I don't think that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about an overall deterioration in the situation. And I think it is widely accepted that there was inevitably an increase in mortality, which accompanies an increase in malnutrition. Could you have ignored the ban, just gone ahead and sent food aid in willy-nilly somehow? Well, I think the point is that if you had resources in country, you could carry on distributing those resources, I mean, with great care to make sure that you minimise the chances of them being looted, that you, that you reach the people who needed the relief. But I think what really concerned us was the UK government's decision to withhold humanitarian aid, which, as I was mentioning earlier, went against humanitarian principles, which indeed the UK government is signed up to in the Geneva Conventions. And the other thing that really concerned us was that the Department for International Development had only shortly before published what they called their 10 principles of humanitarianism. And one of them was to provide humanitarian aid on an impartial basis. And again, I can quote here, our help will seek to relieve civilian suffering without discrimination on political or other grounds, with priority given to the most urgent cases of distress. And we felt that this was a clear example of where aid was being withheld on political grounds, and that was in direct contradiction of humanitarian principles. I wonder if there is some sense of self-interest in this, because you were receiving funding from the British government, and, you know... It's your job. You have to get on with it. You don't have a job unless you're distributing aid. I would refute that on a couple of reasons. It was an argument which was thrown around at the time. Oh, really, they accuse you of that. Some uh, people did. Well, it was when people were saying, is this really about Action Aid or is this really about the people of Sierra Leone? Okay. Yeah. Then we actually refuted that very easily because we still did have some resources. So it's not that we were 100% dependent on aid from Department for International Development. But we were concerned with the point of principle here that humanitarian aid is supposed to be given unconditionally 
That's what's in the Geneva Conventions. That's what's in international humanitarian law. And in this case, it was not happening. And that's what we were concerned about. And we were also concerned about it in the case of Sierra Leone. But as was this a precedent? Was this something that we were going to see from now on? And we felt that it had to be fought on those grounds. And we knew we had the backing of a lot of other UK NGOs in taking this stance. Peter, you were breaking the Geneva Convention. That's the charge. Um, no, I think we're, we're losing the, the wider picture here. As I say, all the available information we had was that there was not a humanitarian crisis. But more importantly, as I said right at the beginning, the worst humanitarian problem in Sierra Leone was the continuing existence of the hunter and all the hunter that was doing to the people, the human rights abuses, the atrocities. People were, were certainly dying. People were suffering not from a lack of food or humanitarian supplies but from the very evil and brutal regime that was continuing. Yes, but and it is... was not just us who were saying this. I mean, an important part of our consideration in making all our decisions was to be guided by what the Sierra Leone people themselves were saying. And certainly all the Sierra Leone people that I was in touch with, as I say, and I was sort of speaking to them regularly every day on the telephone, I had endless streams of people coming out of Sierra Leone, they were very clear in their mind. They didn't want to see anything, the international community doing anything, to prolong the life of that hunter yes, one extra is, day. Yes, but Peter, is it really, in the end, totally up to the Sierra Leonean people if there is an overall principle in the Geneva Convention that people should not be deprived of, of food aid? I think there's more important principle involved that people have a right to sort of live in a peaceful and sort of a humane way without a sort of an evil regime sort of bludgeoning them in the way that they were. And this clearly was the, the view of the people. I mean, I, I cite one example that happened to me, which, as you may know, during the sanctions, a tanker managed to get in providing some fuel. Now, up until then, there had been no fuel in the country, so therefore the people, particularly in Freetown, had been without electricity, they had been without vehicles running around, a pretty miserable existence added to their already miserable existence. You would have thought that when that tanker came in and suddenly for the first time for weeks, if not months, they suddenly had ele- electricity, they would have been overjoyed. Not at all. My phone never stopped ringing that day from people in Freetown saying, what the hell is going on? You assured us you would impose the sanctions regime that would stop this fuel. Why didn't you stop this? Why did you allow that tanker to get in? Don't you realise this will just prolong the life of the hunter? If people had started dying and there were pictures in the world's press and on television of people dying of starvation, would you have changed your mind? Um, I, I, I would it certainly, yes. I think there would have been a, a strong grounds for um, that consideration. The, the policy as such, anyway, as it was enunciated, never said no humanitarian aid at any cost. What we said was that we did not feel it was justified to provide funding for humanitarian aid, A, because it was not needed at that time, but if the situation changed, and we said that in our statements at the time, we would then look at it. But we would also need to look at it in the context of whether it could be guaranteed that that humanitarian assistance would get to the people who who needed it. And I come back to the point that I raised earlier. I don't think the NGOs could have guaranteed that. Bear in mind that all the expatriate staff were no longer in the country, so it was very difficult to sort of to monitor what was going on. And clearly, a lot of this humanitarian, particularly the food, would have been sort of hijacked by the soldiers and the rebels. 
I had a discussion with some NGOs about this, about what is the, the point you were making just now, Robin, what is the acceptable limit of how much you allow to be taken off? And already the NGOs at that time were saying they'd had to raise their level of acceptance from what used to be something like a 12% sort of fallout, and they were prepared to go up to 30%, 35%, 40%. The other aspect specifically I want to say about rice, because rice is the food that Sierra Leone's like, But in the context that we were in at that time, rice became more than just a food substance. It became actually the currency. There were no banks. All the banks had closed down. And therefore, bags of rice was just like bags of dollars. So, in fact, to have bought bags of rice in was just like bringing sackloads of dollars in, which would also have helped, therefore, sort of keep the the hunter in power. Margie, as it became clear that people were not dying, at least in large numbers, did you start changing your mind? Well, we didn't, but I think the reason is that, um, as we know from so many different humanitarian crises, particularly on the African continent, but around the world, is it's notoriously difficult to establish exactly how many people are dying in any of these crises unless you get very large refugee movements or population movements where you get large numbers of people living in one place. I mean, that's when it becomes, sadly, becomes newsworthy and those are the pictures that get splashed across newspapers and TV screens. But as I recall, people were not dying in large numbers. We don't know. I really would say that we don't know. I would say that... It wasn't a massive refugee crisis on the scale that we've seen if in they Goma. Had been dying in, in, but... If they had been dying in large numbers, the junta would have made political capital out of it, wouldn't they? Again, I would and come back to... And they couldn't find anybody to put in pictures for the outside world to see. Well, again, I come back to actually what's happening in humanitarian crises like the one we had in Sierra Leone in 97, where actually where malnutrition rates are going up, that is what's something that's possible to, to monitor on a fairly regular basis. And that the information showed that the malnutrition rates were going up. And it's within those situations that actually increased mortality is often a hidden trend where people are not moving and therefore it is not evidently happening on a large scale, then you don't have those shocking pictures that we associate with so many refugee situations. And as I say, there's now a number of studies from across different countries in Africa, including, interestingly enough, Sudan in the early 90s, where similarly there was a break on humanitarian aid, a withholding of humanitarian aid. And actually, studies have shown that as a result of malnutrition rates going up, there was an increased hidden mortality in rural areas and villages where people were living. They were not leaving their villages, but they were staying in their villages and mortality was going up. So for those reasons, we took the increased malnutrition rates quite seriously and we felt that humanitarian aid was being withheld for all the wrong reasons. Peter? All the decisions that were made about this were were directed to the situation in Sierra Leone at that time. I mean, I'm not saying necessarily that we would make the same sort of decisions in a different conflict situation. But I think, you know, as I said there was no evidence at all and subsequently has there never been evidence that there was sort of mass starvation, mass numbers of people sort of dying as a result of this decision. I mean, if that had been the case, it would have come to light by now, the bodies would have been found and so on. So I think the decision we made at the time based on the information we had at the time has proved to be sort of more or less accurate. There was no mass starvation, no mass killings. And importantly, I come back to this point, the Sierra Leone people themselves were fully supportive of this decision. 
at that time, they were concerned to see the end of this junta. They felt that they were prepared to suffer and have lead a miserable life if it would just hasten the removal of this junta and bring back their democratically elected government, for which they'd also made great sacrifices, bringing it into power in 1996. Some people we spoke to in Sierra Leone said that a combination of dialogue with the junta and food aid as a weapon might have brought the junta to its heel. Certainly the policy was a combination of sanctions and dialogue, which was to bring the junta to agree to sort of stand down and allow the restoration of the government. That was the official policy. Of course, the ECOWAS policy added on to that also use of force. But, but there um, wasn't much talking going on between you and the junta, was there? There was a lot of talk going on between the junta and ECOWAS. I mean, it was decided at the time, the United Nations and the international community decided to put their full support and weight behind the efforts of the ECOWAS Foreign Affairs Committee, the Committee of Five. So there was dialogue going on all the time between the junta and those foreign ministers and the ECOWAS governments, at which we were supporting and which I, I used to attend some of those meetings as well as an observer. So there was dialogue, but it wasn't direct dialogue because it wasn't considered appropriate. Effectively, we were looking still at that time of looking at an African problem with an African solution, led by ECOWAS and the OAU. They were desperate to be loved, this junta. They kept calling us at the BBC, for instance. They were desperate to be loved and understood. Not least by their own people, because their own people didn't even love them either. So, yes, certainly they were desperate to be loved. Mm. Um, was there anything lovable about them? Only when they stood down, finally. No, I don't think there was anything lovable. As you know, before I went to Conakry, I'd spent a week negotiating with Johnny Porcaroma and those who committed the coup. And in fact, um, as a result of those weeks of discussions, Johnny Porcaroma had agreed to stand down. The sad fact was, of course, that he had also then opened the back door to the RUF rebels to come in. And when the RUF discovered that um, Johnny Porcaroma and the soldiers were about to stand down, the RUF stopped them from doing that. So there was an acceptance, I think, from the army in the early days that they could have stood down, but the, the RUF rebels put a stop to that and carried on their atrocities. It was all over very quickly, in fact, wasn't it? They were only there for, what, ten months, was it? <laughs> ten months is a very long time, I think, if you were living in Freetown or in Sierra Leone at that time. I mean, mm. I, I found it, in fact, remarkable more the other way, that for ten months, both the Sierra Leone people, by far the vast majority of them, and the international community remained united. And it was an important plank of the policy to ensure that that did remain united. I mean, not even people like Gaddafi or Castro even came out in support of the junta. I think there was a clear, therefore, message being sent to the junta they had to stand down. And part of the reasoning why the international community stayed so solidly together was that they were realising that the junta was totally incapable of governing the country, of providing any form of assistance to the people. That, therefore, is related, I think, to the whole question, therefore, of sort of assistance going in. The hunter undoubtedly could have played it to their effect that if, say, for example, shiploads of sort of humanitarian assistance was coming in, they would have played it that this was thanks to their efforts and so on mm -hmm. and would have allowed them to create the impression that they were governing the country properly. So what was the crucial thing in bringing down this regime? Was it sanctions? Was it ECOMOG? Was it diplomacy? What was it? I think it was a combination of various things. It was a combination of the continuing dialogue. It was a continuation, partly the sanctions, but undoubtedly it was also the force as well. As we found out on many, many occasions, they were not going to stand down voluntarily. Certainly not the RUF were not going to allow the junta to stand down. And it required also the force as well, the force which was provided by... Ekamogan, in particular the Nigerian forces. 
But that had to be also backed up by the sort of strong international community position, and it had to be clearly backed up by the views of the Sierra Leone people. So you had the, all the right ingredients to ensure that it took place. And these were very specific ingredients to the Sierra Leone situation. And I come back to this point again. I'm not saying that, therefore, to resolve the problem, say, in northern Uganda now or in Ethiopia or in Congo, you can just use the blueprint of Sierra Leone. But there was one clear message that we were sending out, and which we hoped would be sending a message for the whole of Africa. I mean, when we were in Conakry, it was not just a question of restoring the legitimate government to Sierra Leone. We were trying to send a message for the whole of Africa that this would be the last military coup in Africa, that if any other bunch of soldiers suddenly decided one morning to get up and overthrow the, their legitimate government, they would get the same reaction, hopefully from their own people and from the international community. And when we did actually restore President Kaba's government in March of 98, those of us who had been involved felt we'd done a, something as a contribution to, to the future peace and democracy of Africa. Have you? I think we had for a while. Sadly, the next coup that came along was just in neighbouring Ivory Coast, and I'm afraid there we slid back again because then we went back to the old system of coming to these bunch of soldiers and saying, oh, you naughty boys, you shouldn't have done that. Now, when are you going to have your democratic elections? And I think as a result of that, particularly in Ivory Coast's case, we've now seen that country plunge from one crisis to another. Maggie, I, I know this is a slight exaggeration, but what Peter seems to be saying is if, if it was left to you and you'd put in food aid and things, the, the junta might still be there today. You would be responsible for keeping alive a, a ruthless military regime. Well, I think that is quite a large exaggeration because actually I think the things that Peter is saying about the international pressure on the junta and the fact that it was pretty much universally condemned I think are all really important points. And... I mean, at no point were we taking issue with any of that. It wasn't our position to. We were, but you we might were... have prolonged this junta's life. No, that's where I disagree, because the whole point is, in providing humanitarian assistance in a very targeted way and minimal humanitarian assistance, we weren't talking about, you know, enormous shiploads of humanitarian assistance pouring in and kind of allowing that to be grabbed by by the military. What we were talking about was looking at projects on a case-by-case basis. And, I mean, we completely understood that whichever donor, whether it was the UK government or any other donor, they would want to be reassured that that assistance was going to get to the people who were most in need. But we felt that at least projects should have been looked at on a case-by-case basis. Who were the people in need? How could we most ensure we were going to reach them. And if that had been the position that was taken, then I don't think you could possibly claim that humanitarian assistance would have shored up the regime. Don't aid agencies also have a duty to think in wider terms? You need to think not just about providing food for the hungry, but you also need to think in terms of peace, democracy, these kind of issues. Absolutely. And in that sense, I think one of the the real areas of progress in humanitarian work is that I think most agencies working in places like Sierra Leone are actually investing much more in their own kind of political analysis so that whatever they're doing, they're doing that with a much stronger and more sophisticated contextual analysis. But I would still come back to the point that if you go back to the Geneva Conventions and the principles of humanitarianism then do what you do in a politically informed way, but provide that aid impartially and do not withhold it for political 
reasons. But what about the argument that the best way to reduce people's suffering in Sierra Leone was to just get rid of this regime as quickly as possible and by any means? Again, I come back to the principles of humanitarianism because as soon as you start entering into those kinds of calculations, I mean, they're very tricky calculations to make. And, you know, it's sort of like how many lives do we sacrifice in order to get a better solution in the long term? But I'd just like to make one other point around humanitarian principles. One of the reasons why humanitarian agencies talk so much about these principles of impartiality and humanity is because the best way of them gaining access to the people in need is to be saying to whoever it is waging the war, we are not interested in trying to influence the course of this war. Our commitment to you is that we're working on the basis of impartiality and we're just trying to reach the people who need that assistance. It may sound very simplistic, but it's actually a critical point in terms of gaining access to people in need in the middle of a war. And I think that once agencies stop working to those principles, then their chances of reaching people in need are, I mean, you might as well forget it. They're just not going to be able to do it. Peter, the last word from you. When you talk about sort of Geneva Convention, the important thing about Geneva Convention is the protection of people's human rights and to prevent human atrocities. We had a situation in Sierra Leone where people were being brutally murdered, their arms and legs were being hacked off, the women were being raped, the children were being kidnapped, their homes were being destroyed, the city was being destroyed, the government's infrastructure was collapsed, there was no police, there was no law and order. These were the things that had to be corrected. People were not complaining that they didn't have enough to eat, they were complaining about all those awful things and we had to have a commitment to ensure that that was removed and the democratic government was back. There was no people dying of mass hunger, and therefore we didn't want to do anything which could be in any way contribute towards keeping the suffering of that people going on longer than it did. There we are, two views. Nobody's changed their view. <laughs> but thank you very much indeed for joining me in this programme. Margie Buchanan-Smith, Peter Penfold, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.